You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. So the same Welcome to episode 145 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about Antoine Saint-Exupéry's 1943 quasi-children's book, The Little Prince. We'll get to that in just a minute. Um, I'm your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Joining me today is always Nathan Gilmore, who is an associate professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Nathan, how's it going? Uh, it's actually Gilmu, and uh, it's going well. It's going well. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I, you know, just a just fair warning. I speak uh, I speak moderate French, which means I'm going to feel like I'm smart enough to pronounce some things here, which uh, I'm probably not actually smart enough to pronounce. So, uh, to those of you who don't speak French, I'm sure I'll sound unbelievably pretentious. To those of you who do speak French, I'm sure I'll sound like a hillbilly. And see, I pronounce all my Latin and Greek with a coal mine accent, so I... <laughs> I should say that I'll sound like un hillbilly. <laughs> also joining us, uh, professor of English at Central Christian College in uh, McPherson, Kansas, David Grubbs. Good morning, good morning. It's always hard to figure out, now that we don't have listener feedback at the top of the show, it's always very hard. To, it, it feels like we're getting into it very early, but... Hopefully people like it that way. So let's just dive in. Uh, the Little Prince has what I suspect is a more interesting history than a lot of children's books. David, you are the person to whom we typically turn for this biographical historical information. I'm not a boat rocker, so what can you tell us about Antoine Saint-Exupéry and the conditions under which he wrote this strange little book? Sure. Um, I found this task somewhat daunting. Uh, the edition of the book that I found at our school library has nothing about this man except his name. Uh, which, if and, you, which is already hard enough, right? <laughs> I was like, Antoine de... Okay. Because I don't have French. And I don't trust Wikipedia for biography, especially when dealing with a figure for whom the source materials will be in a language that I can't read anyway. So, so, you know, thankfully, you know, thanks to uh, the bon Dieu that uh, there is the littleprince.com. We're all going to do it. We're all going to do it. Um, which has uh, not a biography section, but a really interesting timeline of his life that helps to put some things together, which I had suspected. Uh, this book was published in 1943. And in the dedication to the book, dedicated to, uh, well, I'm just going to say it like an American, Leon Wirth, um, which in it, in, in the introduction, it says that one of the reasons he's dedicating it to his friend is because he lives in France where he is hungry and cold and he needs cheering up, <laughs> which when I read that, I was like, what? And then I looked at the copyright date, 1943, and I went, oh. So here's the deal. Antoine was an aviator, uh, a test pilot, um, and was in lots of airplane crashes, incidentally, which is relevant to the story because that's who our, our narrator is, a, an aviator who has crashed his plane in the Sahara, which, incidentally, Antoine did in 1935. Also, uh, uh, during uh, World War II, when France fell, uh, Antoine was able to get out and hang out in exile in the United States, I believe, um, during 1942, 1943, while 
well, some of his friends got stuck in Vichy, France. And so that's, that is his friend who is cold and hungry in 1943 in France, hmm. presumably. So he, he is, he is a Frenchman in exile. Uh, the next year he actually, uh, signs up with the free French forces, uh, in their air force. And in 1944 is shot down while on a reconnaissance mission. And for a long, long time, his body was lost. Uh, no one knew where he was until uh, the late 90s and the early 2000s when eventually they found uh, first signs of where his, uh, his plane might be. And then in 2003, the wreck itself with, uh, with his body. So uh, there, there's some, some interesting correspondences between, between the, the narrator and the story and the, the author himself. I don't know. Maybe this happened in 1935. Maybe he actually met a little guy out in the desert. I don't know. <laughs> this is essentially the only book by him anybody reads. He has, I think, one or two others, but none mm -hmm. of them come even close to the popularity of The Little Prince. Mm -hmm. And I I know nothing about them. Mm -hmm. Which, according to the timeline, some of the stuff that he wrote actually won awards and other kind of literary esteem at the time. But yeah, this is the only one that at least anyone outside of France knows. Mm -hmm. Anything you want to add to that, Michael? Uh, no, I mean, we're going to talk a bit about his marriage when mm -hmm. we get to a later question, but yeah, the, the, he, he was himself an aviator who died not long after writing the book that he, that he wrote it in exile in the United States, that it was in fact, I think when he died, Leon Ver Wirth, for some reason I want to pronounce his name with a German accent, so go figure, <laughs> Leon, Leon Wirth, um, didn't even know this book existed that was dedicated to him until after his friend's death. Um, but, so there's there's this weird overlay of tragedy on top of this book, which is already a melancholy book in mm -hmm. a lot of ways. It's, it's mm -hmm. as melancholy as it is whimsical. So his uh, his biography, I think, is is important in establishing part of the tone of the novel. Anyway, is there anything you would add to that, Nathan? Uh, not really. I, I I do have a question. I mean, for you, Michael, because you're you know more about this book than we do. Uh, was the estate of the author involved at all in the children's, the short-lived children's animated series back in the 1980s? I, I have never seen that series. Uh, before the show, David and I were talking, and that's how he first encountered Yeah, the me book. as well, me as well. I, I, you know, I, the pictures I've seen of it certainly look like his drawings, which is what we're about to talk about. But uh, yeah. I, So I assume they got some money from it, but I don't know if they created it or if somebody else created it and just paid them. And... Uh -huh. I, I will say that I, I, I remembered, it's like, I think there was a cartoon of this. It was, you know, kind of plundering <laughs> dim memories of childhood. Sure. And I, I went on YouTube and found, oh, look, there's the intro credits for The Adventures of the Little Prince. Television series came out on Nickelodeon in 1985. There you and, go. Uh I, in, in, in the introduction sequence, it says, based on characters from the book by. Uh -huh. So my guess is that, that there's, a, there's a good bit of expansion given the fact that, you know, there were, you know, like a dozen plus episodes, which I really don't know how you could get a dozen plus <laughs> uh, cartoon episodes out of this book. Well, he does spend three three whole episodes on the uh on the sad clown planet <laughs> oh, well that and i mean i i don't remember and again i mean i was eight at the time but i don't remember the uh the what what word did michael use the especially melancholy bits from watching it as a child so <laughs> well i remember not being at, not actually being allowed to watch it because my mother happened to be around the first uh, time was on at someone else's home and and frankly she didn't like how mean the rose was <laughs> <laughs> more on that in a bit um for now let's let's talk about the the artwork this this book is a lot like william blake's songs of innocence and experience because we talked about that last year uh in it 
one of the most immediately striking things about it is these idiosyncratic watercolor illustrations, which Saint-Exupéry painted himself. Nathan, how do the drawings affect the fictional story that is, depending on the edition you use, literally wrapped around them? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting about these illustrations is that they are actually a part of the story. Uh, and, I mean, it's a it's a sophisticated little technique in that respect because uh, the book begins not with the story of the little prince himself, but the story of how the author uh, started out his career as a visual artist uh, and how short that career lasted and why he en- ended up being an aviator instead. Um, <laughs> and, I mean... I, well, what's odd is, and I mean, I, I think this says more about me than about the book, Michael, but the first thing that, I guess the first parallel that occurred to me was to uh, Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five, <laughs> uh, where, well, I mean, where, you know, you get, you know, the narrator goes on for a little bit and it says, and he drew a drawing and it looked like this, and then there's a reproduction of this very crude, in several senses in Vonnegut's case, pencil drawing. Uh, and then you move along and, I, you know, he does that in uh, Breakfast of Champions as well. But uh, it's one of those things where the narrator is really the main character well before the little prince becomes the main character. And part of the identity of the narrator is that he is insecure about his ability to draw things well because he was told as a child that he wouldn't end up being a, a an artist uh, and that, in fact, his picture of a boa constrictor who has eaten an elephant <laughs> actually looks like a hat <laughs> this is this is his test to see how sympathetic you are if you think if you think the drawing looks like i think he calls it a closed boa yes yes you can't see the inside uh-huh no well, in the translation i was reading he, he calls it a boa constrictor from the outside and then a boa constrictor from the inside Oh, that's interesting. I, I think the, the, the original French is Boa Ferme versus Boa Auvert. Okay, very good, very there, good. There again, French speakers, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry for what I did to your language just there. <laughs> uh, but as the story goes on, uh, the prince actually, uh, the first thing that he requests of him, and I, 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 I'm probably over-reading to say it, it reminded me of uh, John 21, but he keeps asking him, draw me a sheep, draw me a sheep, draw me a sheep. And I'm like, what, did he get him crucified? What, you know, I, I, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, wow. wow I, that's I, ter- I, I that's just got terrible. insulting and sacrilegious all in one swoop. Isn't that great? Uh, but eventually the narrator comes to illustrate all of these episodes that the little prince narrates. Uh, and you know, the, the character of the illustrations to turn to that now that I'm rambling and blaspheming uh, is <laughs> like you said, idiosyncratic. I mean, you know, it's a, I would describe it as a sort of childlike style. Uh, it is neither abstract art nor sort of Renaissance realism. Uh, it is, I mean, I, I, the best way I can describe it is, I mean, something that would look like it would be at home in a children's book. Um, David, I mean, help, help me develop some vocabulary here for these paintings. Yes, it is, it is simplistic, but there's, um, there's an awareness of perspective, uh, mm-hmm. in, in them. That's, that's not, uh, that's not childlike. Um, the, uh, the fact that the little prince is almost never facing directly at you. He's almost mm-hmm. always rotated slightly. Mm. Um, other, 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 other points like that indicate this is, uh, this is an adult artist. This is, this is someone who's trained in the use of perspective, but is intentionally, um, pursuing a style that is, that is meant to look more naive than it is. Okay. So that there, there is some, there is some artistic sophistication, um, some real artistic sophistication in terms of. Uh, in in terms of the technique, especially in the in the perspective and so forth, but um, you know, like 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 I said, this is I I, th- I think it's it's meant to look naive. And, and in but that it, sense, it's it's kind of it's like the, it's kind of like the text of the story too, right? Which which cultivates this very simple language, but is emotionally much richer than that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'd agree. I'm fascinated with this Vonnegut connection. 
If if nobody's written that paper, Nathan, you really ought to. <laughs> because I, I think I think Vonnegut. I think I'll in, spare the world. <laughs> I think Vonnegut, in his way, is is up to the same sort of combination of whimsy and melancholy. Because you read, you read um, Slaughterhouse Five is the only Vonnegut I know. Um, you read that, and it, it's a funny book in a lot of ways, and it's kind of silly, and a lot of goofy '50s science fictiony things happen. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it's like the saddest book in the world that is that is built off of the saddest event of this man's rather sad life. Yeah. Well, right at the beginning of the book, Saint-Exupéry uh, sets up this hierarchy of readers, and it's really a, a kind of priesthood, although it's a priesthood of naivete, maybe. He uh, addresses himself directly to the children that he presumes are going to be reading the novel, and he disparages les grands personnes, um, the grown-ups, but I prefer to translate that, the big people. Mm-hmm. Uh, David, tell me about that division. Um, what work does he put it to as the novel goes on? Man, there's no way that I can get all of this, but um, starting with the... Uh, Boa Constrictor from the inside, Boa Constrictor from the outside. Um, the big people, <laughs> the adults, the grown-ups, uh, all they can see is the outside of the Boa Constrictor, and they cannot infer what's on the inside. And so they they mistake the drawing. They think it's a hat. They mistake the drawing because they cannot infer an inside. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, the... The test, um, which uh, we talked about the narrator, uh, showing this drawing to people to see whether or not they see a hat or they see a boa constrictor who has swallowed an elephant. Um, The little prince passes that test. He looks at the drawing and says, no, I'm not interested in boa constrictor swallowing elephants. I want you to draw me a sheep. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, And ultimately is only satisfied by a picture of a box that has a sheep inside it. You can't see the sheep in the box, but the little prince can see the sheep in the box. In fact, is more satisfied by the sheep inside the box than he is by any actual attempts of visible sheep that the author or the uh, the artist narrator attempts. So, so the first difference between adults, uh, the the big people and the little people, the little man and the big man, uh, is that the little people can see on the inside of things and the big people only see on the surfaces. And that's backed up by the story of a, uh, a Turkish astronomer who is the only one who's ever seen, uh, the, the tiny planetoid on which our little prince lives, but no one will listen to him when he tries to explain it because he dresses like a Turk. (laughs) Um, they can only see it from the outside. And so the, 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 the Turkish head of state orders him to dress up in a suit at which point people listen to him, you know, so that's, that's big people. They only see outsides of things. Also throughout the novel, um, big people are obsessed with numbers and quantification. Um, how many, uh, how high, how, how much does it weigh? Uh, how much is it worth? Um, he, he uses the illustration of a house, you know, you might describe the color of the house and the flowers in the garden, but they don't care, but you tell them how much it's worth and they say, Oh, what a beautiful house. Mm -hmm. Um, and this, well, this will, this will come up later when we get to, uh, various people that the, that our little prince meets who, who seem to be representations of this, uh, this tendency in different kinds of uh, different kinds of grown-up types, but uh, those are the main things that I'm seeing: that inside versus outside, and then the the obsession with with quantification that prevents an appreciation of individual detail or individual features. Right, but and I, I mean, at, at one point, as I recall. Uh, he's he's addressing himself to the the children reading, and he says, "If you make a new friend, your your the the big people won't care about anything that's really important about him. They'll just ask how much money his father makes." Mm-hmm. Which I'm not mm-hmm. sure that's exactly true, but it sure is funny. <laughs> <laughs> 
not not unless you're in Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> Ten thousand pounds a year, man. <laughs> um. Anyway, yeah. My my daughter actually has a counting book to Pride to to uh, Pride and Prejudice, and number ten is ten thousand pounds a year. That's nice. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty awesome. And she and she can say Pemberley, Longbourn, Neverfield. <laughs> it's quite awesome. Sorry. Anyway. Well, Grubs is raising a little Grubs. <laughs> That's without a doubt. <laughs> Anyhow, back um, to the French books. <laughs> sure. <laughs> to, to me, the most vivid and memorable character in this book is the prince's girlfriend, who is this rather vain Rose, who loves him as much as she berates him, although Grubbs' mother didn't understand that. <laughs> Nathan, do you agree with me here? What what makes that Rose so memorable? Well, first of all, I mean, the fact that you don't know it is a Rose, I mean, it is described as this exotic spacefaring organism uh, that lands on the little prince's planet. You know, the planet, of course, is a, is an asteroid-sized but yet inhabitable place. It's a children's book. Work with us. Uh, and, you know, the rose <laughs> really is, I mean, the entity on the planet with which the prince has conversations. Uh, and so, I mean, you know, it, it's only when uh, the little prince, as I remember, and Michael, if I get this wrong, tell me, it's only when he encounters a rose garden on the planet Earth that he realizes that the flower that loved him back on his planet was an instance of this species. Uh, in other words, I mean, it was a unique, it was sui generis until he discovers that it's actually part of a species. And I mean, I think that's a, a, a turning point in the book because, you know, he comes to realize that on earth, you know, this place that like some of the other planets is obsessed with quantification, uh, there's no sense in talking to a rose because all you can do is count them. Uh, but I mean, you know, one thing about this rose, you know, as you said, is that, uh, it is, she is, I shouldn't use the neuter pronoun here. Uh, she is attached to the prince, you know, in ways that the prince sometimes finds insufferable. Uh, and yet the prince has a sense that at all turns, there's a connection between the two that, you know, really sort of makes him who he is. Uh, so, I mean, it, it, it really is, you know, a, a fascinating thing where as he travels from planet to planet, eventually lands on earth. Uh, one of the thoughts that recurs to him is that his rose is going to miss him. Uh, when he does make plans to leave earth and return to home, uh, it's always the rose that he's thinking of. So, one of the things I, and you know, I realized this wasn't really the nature of the question you asked Michael, but the, the thing that keeps occurring to me is that the rose on the little prince's planet is a different kind of thing from the roses in the rose garden on earth, precisely because the rose is, I don't even know what to call it. Individual doesn't seem quite right. Person doesn't seem quite right. It's his rose. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. the difference. There, there, yeah. there may not be a, there may not be a distinct difference between that rose and the field full of roses he meets on Earth. But the the difference is that she's claimed him, right? Right, right. Mm -hmm. I'll re I'll resist the uh, temptation here to try to define that in terms of ontic and ontological. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. What el what else would you add, Michael? <laughs> I I think he I think he. He feels guilt, right? Because she she drives him from the planet. She she just berates him constantly. She's this very funny, very vain, very cruel in a lot of ways creature who, from the moment he meets her, he loves her, and from the moment she meets him, she orders him around. Mm -hmm. Um, and 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 she is apparently based on Saint Exupéry's uh, Salvadoran wife Consuelo. Mm -hmm. Uh whom it must be said he like compulsively cheated on and 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 so a lot of critics have looked at that scene with the field of roses where where he he kind of gets lost amongst them as as some expression of guilt or an allegorical confession yeah an allegorical confession i, I know you're making fun of me about last week but i'm just gonna oh perish the thought michael I'm, perish I'm gonna, the thought. I'm gonna move i'm gonna move on through <laughs> uh, yeah go ahead david you... Did you just say Paris the thought? 
<laughs> it's pronounced Paris the Thought. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay, okay. Yeah, but but that that scene where you know right after that he meets the the fox who talks to him about domestication about about how when you when you tame a creature you become responsible for it. This is this is the mm-hmm. overall theme of the of the the prince's relationship with this rose that she is she has tamed him and he has also tamed her and so it's his mm-hmm. job to tend to her and he's done a lousy job at that. And and this is what convinces him he needs to leave Earth and go back to his asteroid. Right, right. And we don't get the Rose's side of it, but presumably she's feeling something similar. Mm-hmm. That, that in fact, she has loved him the whole time and, and just has not been able to express it because she's so silly and vain. Her her, her first lines are great. Um, she she, uh, she spends all morning putting herself together the way a flower does, right? She's She's... In inside her green bedroom, she is she's putting on her makeup and getting dressed and doing her hair, and uh, and, and she comes out looking perfect. And she says in the English translation, "Ah, I am scarcely awake. I beg that you will excuse me. My petals are still all disarranged." And and the the little prince is just smitten with her, and he says, "Oh, you're so beautiful." And she says, "Aren't I?" And I was born at the same moment as the sun. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, this is this is their relationship in a nutshell. She is she is, it, it's this this Italian term we've talked about for years on this show, sprezzatura, right? Mm-hmm. She she is trying to look like she's not working, but she's working. She wants to impress him, just like he wants to impress her. He feels driven to impress her, driven to take care of her, driven to love her. Um, there's there's something faded about this very strange relationship between a, what is you know a little boy and a flower, mm-hmm. uh, but th- that's nevertheless I think very moving. Feminists have taken issue with it. You know they say it's a patronizing picture of uh, of femininity. Do you guys what do you think of that? Oh goodness, I mean I, I I guess the danger I'm always aware of is universalizing a single character. Uh, I think that, you know, and, and first of all, I'll go ahead and grant the point. I mean, since the flower is, as I remember, the only exemplar of femininity in the book, you might have some point, but it's also, I mean, a very particular flower, you know, I it, you don't get the sense that every being in the universe that is a woman, uh, is just like the flower, or at least I don't, I've may, maybe I'm giving it too much, uh, too much leeway here. Mm-hmm. Well, and and we have, uh, you know, as you brought up, Michael, we have some reason to see this as not, as 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 explicitly not an image of all femininity ever, but of a very specific individuated femininity. It's his rose. Right. His rose might be different. <laughs> right, but th- this is this is the one that he has claimed. Or that really more accurately has claimed him. I, I, I do think that's important that when we get to when we get to the speech about um, about domestication, about taming, uh, the the first one that uh, the first one that cl- his first impression is that the rose tamed him. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I do I do think that's that's important for framing that that kind of that issue. Right. Which is what love feels like, right? Yep. It usually does not feel, at least at first, like a choice. It feels like something that has been demanded of you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cold forth. Well, this novel is full of sad scenes. Um, but one of the saddest is the the sequence that comes, I don't know, right before the halfway point, where you have a few very short chapters in which the prince visits a number of planets, each of which is inhabited by a single person. David, what is Saint-Exupéry up to in these scenes, and why does the the little prince attach himself to the narrator at the end of that sequence? He visits um, a number of little planets, as you said, a number of uh, a, a number of planets that are as little as him. So, um, well, I guess we need to set this up. We haven't been doing a whole lot of... Uh, of of plot summary so that if you if you haven't read the little prince when we say the little prince is from a little planet 
Imagine a super tiny planet that you could walk around in about, you know, a minute. It's a mm-hmm. it's an asteroid, right? Asteroid B612, I think it is. Yes. And I mm-hmm. can't do French numbers I, at all, so I won't attempt I think... to say that in French. <laughs> <laughs> um, he, uh, well, it, it, it's so small that he loves to watch sunsets, so all he's got to do is watch the sunset, move his chair back, watch it again, move his chair back, watch it again. <laughs> all right. Um, so, you know, it's, it's pretty much, you know, sunsets on demand. Um, he has tiny volcanoes, one of which he, I think, brews tea on or something. It's, it's, I, I can't remember. He's, he cooks on one of these volcanoes. Mm-hmm. Uh, he so, sweeps so th- out the dead ones. Yes. <laughs> so, so this is, this is a very, because if very, you keep them clean well, they don't erupt. <laughs> Seems reasonable. Well, yeah, I mean, it's something I learned about volcanoes from this book. Very educational. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, good, good book for good book for for learning things. <laughs> so when we, so when you say he he visits a number of planets, each of them inhabited by one person, don't imagine, you know, the planet Earth with like this one lonely dude on it. Um, imagine another planet like his, another super tiny planet, just big enough for a couple people to stand on. And each one represents, uh, well, it seems, seems to pretty clearly represent a type. And he makes that move later on. Um, he encounters uh, a king. He encounters a, was it a, a, a merchant? Was that, was it's that like a, an accountant, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's a, a bookkeeper. Yeah, he's yeah. a businessman in my translation. Yeah, the book said, the book said businessman in mine, but it, but it, but all he ever did was kind of sit there. He wasn't selling things. So I wondered about that mm-hmm. translation. Right. Um, there's one with a, uh, a narcissist, <laughs> a conceited man. Uh, there's one with a lamplighter and one with a geographer. And then after that, he encounters Earth. So the king rules everything, he thinks. He says, he claims, uh, everything that he can see is under his domain and he gives everything orders, which it then obeys because he only gives orders, which are likely to be done anyway, um, which he considers <laughs> he reasonable. He the sun to set at 630. <laughs> the little prince asks him, you know, if you're so powerful, why don't you order the sun to set? And he says, I will, but you have to wait till 630. Right, right. That kind of thing. Um, you know, he, he's constantly ordering the little prince to do something. And the little prince is like, yeah, no, I want to do something else. And he's like, well, then I order you to do that. <laughs> it's like taming a cat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Cat, ignore me. Lick yourself. Okay. It's, it's kind of like that. He's the king of, of a land of cats. So his, his, his rule is all in his head. Right. The most important real thing to him is literally exists only in his head, his mental notion of ruling everything. Uh, the accountant is the same way. He feels like he owns everything and spends all of his time counting it up, numbering the stars and so forth because he owns them and they're worth so much and he's so rich. But actually he doesn't. Um, the only rea- that only that reality is only in his books. Um, the narcissist who I think he actually encounters before the businessman, um, just sort of admires himself and wants the little prince to admire him too. Again, very much stuck inside of his own head. Um, the lamplighter is constantly lighting the lamp and putting it out and lighting it again and putting it out again, because he's on a tiny planet in which the night and day sequence is super quick. <laughs> and he's following orders, right? At, at nighttime, the lamp needs to be on. On daytime, it needs to be off. So that's that's literally all he does because orders are the most important thing to him. Right. He has a job. There's there's also you, you've left out the the drinking man. Oh, the drinking man! I forgot about the drinking man. He drinks. <laughs> he drinks. <laughs> he drinks to forget, <clears throat> and he's trying to forget that he's ashamed, and he's ashamed of drinking so much. Yes. Yes. So it's like yes. no exit, but with one person. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So, yeah, okay, I forgot about the drinking man. And then uh, the geographer, uh, who initially the little prince think is, thinks is going to be super interesting. Um, he, he's writing down records of, of all the different lands, except he doesn't know anything about them because geographers wait for explorers to show up and tell them about stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, for him, he, it's this kind of this, this kind of dominance or mastery of, of the world by means of record keeping that is actually utterly a fiction. And he has no real relationship to the things that he describes or quantifies or tabulates. Um, mm-hmm. He's waiting for someone else to do that job. You know, someone else to walk on the backside of his tiny ping pong ball of a planet and tell them if there's a mountain there. You know, so I think one of the reasons why uh, when the little prince gets to Earth, he attaches himself to the narrator is that the narrator is is a more substantive person. If the whole boa constrictor from the inside, boa constrictor from the outside thing is our narrator's test. Um perhaps in some ways drawing a sheep uh, and having that ha- having a similar kind of sympathy is the little prince's test of him to find out whether or not he's as worthless and uninteresting a person as the big people he's encountered thus far. How much foolishness are you willing to put up with? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, at what point are you going to tell the little prince that what he, that what he's most interested in is unimportant and doesn't matter? Right. And I and I need to get back to things of consequence. The the parallel scene right is when he meets the merchant in the desert who sells the pill mm-hmm. that you can take instead of having to drink water, and he says, "Well, why would you do that?" And he says, "It'll save you a lot of time. It'll save you, you know, fifty three minutes a day or whatever." And he says, "Well." What do you do with that 53 minutes? And the merchant says, anything you want. And he says, if I had 53 minutes to spare, I think I'd go get a glass of water. <laughs> <laughs> but, that, but that's the kind of, that's the kind of non-quantifiable, uh, I guess is the best word. It's, it's the kind of non-quantifiable logic of, of the Little Prince, the person, and the Little Prince, the book. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's what a, ch- a child easily understands that... that your life is not made up of a series of minutes that need to be saved. Your life is made up of a series of minutes with which you need to do something worthwhile instead Mm. of drinking to forget or giving orders or turning on and turning off a lamp. You you know, Mm. you you need to be an explorer, not a geographer. Mm -hmm. Well, and not just that, but not wrapped up in, in not considering most important things that are really fictions. Right. You know, the, the I'm king of the universe in a completely fictional way. <laughs> you know, I'm the richest man in a completely fictional way. I'm rich on paper. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I must follow the orders of a person who doesn't exist on my planet. <laughs> right. Yeah. Orders that make no sense. Yeah. You know, from no one. Just, you know, because that's the most important thing for reasons that are not actually entirely so so there's a there's a kind of uh unreality to the adult world that the child in the little prince sees and resists the why why would you do that all of that is unreal i don't see how that's important and all the fights he gets in with the narrator are because the narrator wants him to be quiet for a little while so he can go back to fixing his plane for a very good reason, which is that he's going to die in the desert if he doesn't get this plane fixed. <laughs> yeah. Well, though, though our little prince manages to solve that by some mysterious means, and again, kind of Jesus-y. Well, right. Yeah, he's kind he of is, He is kind of a magical astro. Wait, what? <laughs> never mind. Never mind. <laughs> I, I've got a question for you, though, Michael. I mean, you, you said that you regarded these scenes as sad. I, I'll admit, when I read them, uh, you know, it's, it's before I looked at the show notes, uh, I kind of regarded them as, you know, sort of a satirical farce, something along the lines of Gulliver's Travels or Candide by Voltaire, where, mm-hmm. I mean, you have these sort of quasi 
Uh, and I, I know I keep going back to allegorical. I really don't mean to rub this in your face, but it just keeps happening. But quasi-allegorical <laughs> uh, representations of certain social vices. Uh, when, when the show notes asked me to be sad during that sequence, I found it difficult to do. I, I mean, is this yet another exhibit that I'm a sociopath? Or no, no. I, I, th- I think, I think, <laughs> I think you're supposed to feel multiple things at once. I, I think you are. Okay. They are funny scenes. I mean, the, the scene, especially with the king, mm-hmm. uh, giving the, this series of ridiculous orders is. Oh fu- yeah, yeah. It's funny, but you know the weight of these scenes, one after the other after the other. I, I think, I think does leave leave me feeling melancholy. I mean, it leaves me feeling sad for the state of the adult world, the state of my life, you know, because truth be told, I'm much more like these guys than I am like the little prince. I don't, I don't have his sense of whimsy. Mm -hmm. And if I really sat down and thought about it, I'm not sure I think I should. Okay. But yeah, Uh, so I, I don't, I don't think you're wrong for seeing them as satire. Certainly they are, but all satire has something sad in it, right? (laughs) Gulliver's travels is sad. I mean, Gulliver's travels explains, um, it explains the prevalence of human war by saying it's based on the way they crack open an egg, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's funny, and it's cutting, but it's also sad. Interesting. Okay, see, and, and that is not the way that I tend to read satire. I usually come away from satire, I mean, honestly, with a sort of undeserved sense of moral superiority until I actually, <laughs> until I actually step away from the satire and think about my own role in those things, but that sort of thing doesn't occur to me while I'm reading a satire. I mean, which again might just be a, a sign that you're a better reader than I am. I, I don't, you know, discount that possibility at it, all. It might but... just be a sign that I am a generally sad person <laughs> and, a, and am, am easier to make sad than you. <laughs> Entirely possible. Mm. Oh, yeah. I, I, I mean, I think within the context of the book, that it, it's supposed to be sad and it becomes sadder as it goes. Uh, I think when you get to earth and there's that, I can't remember which chapter it is, but it says, and on earth there's this many Kings and this many accountants and this many drunkards and this many lamplighters, mm-hmm. and this many narcissists. And, you know, so each, each of these types, that's, that's 2 billion Two billion adults, right there. There they are. Most yeah. lives, most men live lives of quiet desperation. Yeah, and none of these types, you know, you know, they get to be a type on a planet. The 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 king on his planet, he gets to be, he's the king of everything. But then, when you shrink it down and put it on a world full of kings, it becomes even sadder, you know, because they don't they don't even have the they don't even have the dignity of being unique. Mm-hmm. Power becomes even more of an illusion. Bad faith, bad faith. <laughs> I think it's funny that Nathan's the one ringing the existentialist bell over and over again. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I I saw a lot of that going on in this novel, and it is a French novel from 1943. <laughs> hey, <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, <laughs> I I think I think in that sequence, the other thing that's sad about it is you feel very strongly the exile that the author was living as he was writing it. Mm. This, this this going from place to place without finding a home, without finding a sympathetic ear, without finding anyone who lives their life the way you were accustomed to people living it. Mm. Mm -hmm. But I won't deny that it's also funny. (laughs) Well, I suspect not even Nathan Gilmore thinks that the tearjerker at the end of the novel uh, in which, spoiler alert, by the way, uh, the little prince commits what, for all, what, to all appearances, is suicide in order to get back to his home planet. Nathan, how literally are we meant to take that sequence? Oh gosh. <laughs> um, well, I mean, first, I, honestly, the first thought I had was to a conversation that we had, uh, sort of across the podcast with the CWC crew several years ago about the word gnostic. And, you know, I, I still maintain that that word gets thrown around too loosely so that it it isn't as useful when you encounter actual Gnosticism out in the wild. I think this is encountering Gnosticism out in the wild. 
Uh, I mean, in this scene, and again, listeners, if you want to read the novel first, well, first of all, you already know how it ends, but uh, basically a desert, a talking desert snake convinces the little prince uh, or, you know, plays into what the little prince already thought. It's hard to tell. Uh, but the result either way is that the snake, the prince allows the snake to bite him so that he may shed this heavy body and ascend into the stars and return to his rose. Uh, you know, this, uh, honestly, I mean, I, I, I recognize that it's supposed to be sad. I, I, when I read it, it struck me as more creepy than sad. Uh, you, you really are a heartless person, Nathan. I don't deny that. I don't deny that. But I mean, it, it's this weird mix of, you know, sort of Milton's Satan and Gnosticism and, I mean, just all kinds of weird stuff going on uh, in ways that I'll admit I didn't expect out of a children's book. Because, again, my my faint memories from 30 years ago of that animated series <laughs> uh, didn't involve Gnosticism or suicide cults. So, I, <laughs> you know, uh, I'll admit that this, you know jumped on me a little bit um but yeah i mean the uh the narrator you know tries to warn the prince away from the snake but it's too late because you know the prince has decided that you know the only way to get back to his prince is to again shed his uh carnal body and the novel didn't use that phrase but it 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 reads gnostic so i'm going to use gnostic terms uh to shed his carnal body and ascend into the celestial spheres once again, yep. to experience the true love of his rose. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, Grubs, I'm, I'm going to lateral to you here. I mean, I, like I said, I mean, I got creeped out by it. I mean, was it a tearjerker scene for you? I was, I was sad for the loss of the narrator, but because within the story, there's never any doubt that the little prince is who he says he is. Mm-hmm. I was not sad that he was going to get to go back to see the rose, right? So in 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 that sense, I didn't. It didn't read to me as gnostic because because to me, I'm being presented with a narrative in which that actually does make sense. He actually is from this other planet. He came flying through the stars to be here. Mm-hmm. You know. You know, who am I to say how this alien gets back to home? <laughs> you know, um, so it, it, it didn't I mean, I, I can see where you get to Gnosticism from there. But mm-hmm. to me, but to me, calling it Gnosticism. Um, and then this is this is just from my perspective. It feels weird to me to call it Gnostic if it's also true. <laughs> mm, interesting. OK. <laughs> You know, but, but because because my my notion of Gnosticism is so framed by the fact that that's a that that's a faulty way of thinking about reality, if that makes okay. sense. If 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 you're being presented with a setting in which you actually do have an entity that can get home in that way, but but we've not seen anything in the book before that that suggests that he can travel without the use of a body. And and I mean, even in the scene, the little prince is terrified. Yeah. No, that's true. The 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 snake has kind of convinced him this is going to work. Mm-hmm. Here's that's what he true. here's what he says. You're making um, me doubt it. <laughs> here's what here's what he says to the narrator. You understand it's too far. I cannot carry this body with me. It's too heavy. But it will be like an old abandoned shell. There's nothing sad about old shells. This is. Uh. A, th- th- I, I'm not saying that's not Gnostic. This is this is supposedly what Saint Exupéry's brother said to him as he was dying. Oh goodness! Yeah, and, and I didn't know that when I first read it, and I was still moved by it. But when you when you when you know that, it's even it's even more brutal. You know that that because his brother was not trying to to fly back to a alien planet to be with a flower. You know, his brother was like you and me, rather attached to his body. And and, yeah. and because I don't see anything else in the book that suggests the little prince um, can travel as a disembodied spirit, I don't know, man. To to me, it looks like we're looking at the death of a ten year old, albeit an alien ten year old. Hmm. Okay. Well, it, I, I guess at that point, it never struck me that it it didn't strike me that way when it, when I got to that point, because this book this book describes his the little prince's reality as so alien to my own mm-hmm. that I, that I that that I simply don't know what the rules are. 
Mm. And, and that's true. I mean, I leave open the possibility. Mm-hmm. But you know, when, I mean, when you're when you're dealing with science fiction, a lot of the emotional science fiction or fantasy, a lot of the emotional tension that's involved, um, really does depend on you knowing what the rules of the setting are. You know, yeah. knowing knowing what's at stake. And there's so little that we know about this little prince because he doesn't answer questions <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that that I don't know what's normal for him. So and at the so when I get to that scene, yeah, it's sad, but I'm sad for the narrator. I'm sad that the narrator is is that I'm sad that the narrator has been tamed. You know, mm-hmm. and so and so he and so when this, you know, the little prince is gone, he loses someone. But he gets the stars, you know, that's nice. And, and he, he um, has absolute faith in that final chapter that the, the little prince has done what he said he was going to do. In fact, what he's worried about is that the little prince will forget to put the globe over the flower at night. And the sheep will eat it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this, this is an entity that can receive a picture of a box and receive it as the gift of the invisible sheep that's in the box. I don't know what he's capable of. Yeah. What, what, can what invisible a, sheep is inside his box? He can make a village well in the desert. <laughs> I I don't know what's normal for him. So so I I, I didn't read any kind of. I, I had no questions when he said hey, he was going to you know shuffle off this mortal coil and so forth, you know. But may, maybe I'm just not being a cynical enough reader, or suspicious of the snake. Maybe I need to be more suspicious of the snake. Yeah, maybe it was the fact that it's a talking snake and I wrote my dissertation on Milton. (laughs) (laughs) I've just got sort of an instinctive distrust of talking snakes. For some reason. (laughs) Talking foxes are fine? Come on. What did the fox say? (laughs) Oh, good lord. (laughs) I I held that back for, what, 58 minutes now. I... (laughs) You're you're really on fire today, Nathan. The fox says, "If you tame it, you're responsible for it forever." That's what the fox says. It's not how a song goes. That's how it should go, though. <laughs> if it had, if it had not been Scandinavian pop, but had it been fr- instead been French pop, that's, that's yeah. <laughs> so, what do you think? I mean, I mean, do you, do you think that do you think the little prince dies, Michael? Just like like dead forever? No. But I, I think I think you have to uh, I, I think you have to kind of grapple with the possibility that he did. I think I think about the little prince's life after the book the way I think about the afterlife. Ah, uh, which, which is you know, I now, be- now who's going Heidegger on us? It's, it's true. I believe there's an, <laughs> I believe there's an afterlife, but I still believe you have to uh, you have to confront the meaninglessness of death. And, and I, I think you, I think you have to get through the sorrow of. I think it's chapter twenty six before mm-hmm. chapter twenty seven can make sense to you. But yeah. I mean, in the end, that's not the major question for the the narrator of the book, right? The the major question is, what happened once the prince got back to his planet? Mm-hmm. Here then, this is how the book ends. Here then is a great mystery for you who also love the little prince, and for me, nothing in the universe can be the same. If somewhere we do not know where, a sheep that we never saw has yes or no eaten a rose. Look up at the sky. Ask yourselves, is it yes or no? Has the sheep eaten the flower? And you will see how everything changes. And no grown-up, no big person, will ever understand that this is a matter of so much importance. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, maybe maybe it's grown-up of me to worry about whether the little prince died in the desert instead of worrying about his flower. Mm-hmm. Well, because worrying about the flower means you have faith in the little prince. And you're seeing the world the way he does, and you valued it, you valued it the way he does. Whereas if you worry about whether he's alive or not, you're still outside of the little prince's world. Yeah, right. By the end, the narrator has been converted. Yeah. Yeah. And and I'm just going to repeat: talking snake, people, talking snake. <laughs> Don't trust it. Nathan. Nathan is the quintessential big person. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, but if, if, if a talking snake says to you, "Surely you will not die," run. <laughs> well, but see, here's here's the thing: Little Prince doesn't trust the snake. He want he doesn't want the pilot to he doesn't want the pilot to be there because he's afraid he'll be, he'll be bitten too. 
Yeah, because the the snake is the snake is mean. The snake might bite him. You know, but he says he won't have poison enough for a second bite. In biting the little prince, the snake loses his sting. Oh come on! You can't you you can't not turn this into theology. <laughs> oh, Nathan's turning it into theology. <laughs> I, know, I I I know, but it, it but you know it's like yes, the snake is involved, just as you know yeah, the the, the snake's totally totally there. You still shouldn't trust him. It's a Felix culpa. But the little prince doesn't trust him. The little prince gets you know the little prince gets bitten, and because he gets bitten, it can't bite the man. Hmm. More allegory, huh? I don't know. I don't know enough about Antoine de Saint whatever that guy whose name I can't say. Well, at the very least, listeners, I mean, you should note that, I mean, this is a book complex enough to entertain a range of readings. Yes. As as you are witnessing at this very moment. <laughs> if it's an allegory, don't... it's the good kind where it's 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 sloppy. <laughs> No, but see, that's that's the thing. You're like, eh, yeah, and and you can you can just kind of turn it different ways, mm-hmm. you know. And it's it's yeah, it's kind of cool. And and I really I, I really wish I knew. I wish I knew more about the man. In order to be able to see, okay, how much of this am I putting in here versus how much he's putting in here? Because I don't want. I'm kind of I'm kind of glad we don't know the man because it makes the reading more interesting. There must I be an English language biography of Saint Exupéry, right? Couldn't tell you. You would think so. No clue. If not, there must be a French one. And David, you can teach yourself French just to read a biography of him. <laughs> I'll, how about how about I let you read it and tell me about it? <laughs> dare to think for yourself. Um. Dare to learn French on my behalf. Dare to be stupid. <laughs> wow. Well, as usual with these single text episodes, I would like to end with a declaration that I've only scratched the surface of this wonderful little novel and ask you guys what struck you about it as you read through it. And I'm particularly interested, I should say, since you both have kids and I don't, uh, will you be reading this to your children? Mm. Uh, I'm sorry, David, let's start with you. Sure. Oh man, what struck you about it as you read through it? Um, and I'm I'm just going to admit this. Um, I'm struck by how much I didn't like it halfway through, and how much I did like it all the way through. Hmm. Um. Because I, I found it a little difficult to get into at first because it's so ruminative. And it, it kind of jumps back and forth in time, and the narrator reflects on things that happened to, to him. And then you have the little prince who's in kind of the present time of the, you know, the occasion in the desert. But then it's things about the little prince is the, the little prince's reality, which is his past. And it, it just it, it jumps back and forth. And initially I felt that kind of off-putting um, until I realized, oh, wait – this is what you love in the name of the rose. And it's the kind of ruminative excursiveness that you love in city of God and, you know, Burton's anatomy of melancholy. So just keep going. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And by the time I got to the end, when the, when threads start getting tied together and I, I re I really liked it. I liked it so much more all the way through than I did halfway through. Um, so I guess that would be the first thing that I would say. If you've not read this book before, give it a chance, read the whole thing. It's very short. It won't hurt. Um, but if, if, if you find it odd, uh, to start off with, just sort of embrace that and keep going because by the end of it, you'll be very, very glad that you did. Um, that's, that's the biggest impression, uh, that I have. As for will I read it to my children, um, probably not immediately because I don't think I would have liked this when I was a child. Uh, because a lot of the stuff that, that I value or that, that, that I, I, I enjoyed and I'm going to keep thinking about that's in this book, I don't think I would have understood when I was seven. 
what I would have understood when I was seven is that this is a nonlinear story that's hard to follow about things that are not always on their surface incredibly exciting. Mm. You know, I like Narnia because there's fights. <laughs> yeah, there's not really a bad guy in a little prince, is there? No, I mean he has the a bad sword. Guy's adulthood. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I wanted to be an adult. You know, that most most of the things that most of the books that I like involved kids moving on to adulthood, not shunning it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the first picture of him in the book, he's got a sword, but you never see him do anything with it. Right. You know. Anyway. So I, I, but, but later on, you know, maybe, I don't know, eight, nine, 10, um, in, in, in some ways, I think a, a child who's looking towards adulthood might, m- might be ready and in fact need some of these, uh, some of these ideas going into it. And it could, it could lead to, to really fruitful conversations about a whole lot of different kinds of things. So I, I don't know that I would do it immediately, but older children. What do you think, Nathan? First thing that struck me is that, I mean, this would be a, a good companion text to English romantic poetry uh, mm. because it is a an accessible narrative version of sort of the wisdom of childhood and the self-imposed folly of the big people. Uh, so, I mean, it's one of those things where it certainly approaches it, you know, first of all, in a narrative mode and then through a, uh, a, a fantastic narrative rather than a lyric poem. Uh, but it's the same sort of thing going on. Uh, and like I said, I mean, in, in the right sort of literature class context, I could easily see this as pairing up with, uh, you know, intimations of immortality or something like that. Uh, you know, as far as, you know, what I, put this in front of Micah who will turn 10 in March. Uh, I would, but I mean, I would be sure to tell him to talk with me about what happens in the book because, uh, frankly, I mean, I, I, I do think I still maintain that the, uh, talking snake convincing him to, you know, partake of the poison because it will give him a, a celestial life, uh, is ambiguous enough and might be disturbing enough that he might need to have a conversation about it. But ultimately, mm. I, I'm going to agree with David that I didn't read it as a story that appeals to the sensibility of most of the kids that I know, so much as it appeals to adults who are pining for their own childhoods. So, what do you have to say, Michael? Take it home. We were at Anthropology a few weeks ago. My wife dragged me to Anthropology, and they had a pop-up version of The Little Prince, and I almost bought it for my niece, who is three, and then I thought better of it and decided, oh, this is not a book for a three-year-old. <laughs> ten, ten would seem to be about the right age to, to me, uh, but again, I don't have children and am not acquainted with that many ten-year-olds, so who knows. I just love this book. I, I, uh, I love the discourse on love uh, mm. the, the taming part that we've talked about several times. Mm-hmm. I love the drawings. I love the, the underlying sadness of it. I, I agree with you guys. It is, a, it is, a, it is a book for big people who don't want to be big people. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. but, but in that, I think it calls us all to something that, that final chapter that I read about, about what really matters. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think is, is a, is a question worth asking and, and a, and a question that literature is meant to ask us you know, Rilke has that line in uh, Archaic Bust of Apollo, uh, you must change your life. This is the demand that looking at this statue makes on you. And I, I think this book, uh, at least when I read it for the first time, demanded that of me as well. Care, care more about the invisible than the visible. Care, care about um, relationships that don't immediately seem important rather than things that you can easily quantify and understand. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, um, I hope our listeners have enjoyed our discussion of The Little Prince. Obviously, we've just skimmed the surface, so please feel free to write us and tell us what we missed uh, at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Uh, I won't be here next week. It'll be the first ever Christian Humanist without me. <laughs> I, I guess that's not true because there were a couple episodes that are point oh one and they're just Nathan. But other than that, it'll be the first one without me. What are you guys doing? Well, we're going to have a feedback episode. We've been getting... Uh... Some some long and substantive feedback to uh, uh, some of our more recent episodes, 
and we're going to seize the opportunity while you're away to to keep the letters from piling up so high that we're going to need an epic three episode three hour episode just to deal with it all. <laughs> Well, sounds so, great. Yeah. So if, if you want to contribute to that, hurry, because we, we record on Thursday mornings. So <laughs> yeah. I mean, this goes live on Tuesday. You'll have two days to send in your email to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com, and uh, David and Nathan will be happy, I'm sure, to answer yes. it. Uh, any correspondence about The Little Prince, we will probably not answer, especially if it involves translation questions or if the correspondence is written in French. Right. Because we'll need Michael for that. The Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our intern is Zach Schmidt. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our website is christianhumanist.org. Until next time, for David Grubbs and Nathan Gilmore, this is Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger. So the same